And in God's good timing through our study, we've arrived at the sixth of the character traits of those in whom the Spirit of God is working, and that is goodness. And so that we might have this grace much evident in our lives, I'd like to ask you to follow along as I read in Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. And then we'll ask the good God from whom all good gifts come to give us this good gift and make us really good people. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. It's referring to Jesus as he was going out on the road. One came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word. And he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Our good heavenly Father, we Humbly acknowledge that you are the one from whom all good gifts come. There is no shadow in you. There is no turning. There is no deceit. There is nothing but good will toward your people because of the work of our truly good Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we acknowledge your perfect goodness, we would humbly ask, For the Spirit, the good Spirit to be upon us. Even as we confess that we lack goodness, we ask for it in increasing measure. That the people of this world might know that our God is in heaven and He pours out good gifts upon His people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Helen and I watched a film a couple of weeks ago, and we watched it on clean film, so I'm not sure that it could be recommended to you. I've never seen it in the unedited version. I don't know how bad it is, but I don't want you to go home and watch it in the unedited version and think that I recommended it like that, because we did see it in in the clean films version. But what fascinated me about the movie is how strongly they dealt with the issue of selfishness. In the film, Ben Affleck is the main character and he practices at a law firm that is run by men who use the law to cheat their clients. And Affleck has done the same. He has convinced an old man, he's confused and on his deathbed and he went in and kind of manipulated the truth, maybe didn't quite lie to him, but certainly misled him and convinced him to sign his will and 
his vast fortune instead of being controlled by an, uh, an independent board of directors run by his granddaughter is transferred over to the law firm. And, and, and the partners make millions off of this. And the only thing left to do is for Affleck to carry the copy of the will to the court and have it uh, verified that it has his signature. And on the way, while changing lanes, and that's the name of the movie, he has a little fender bender And that little event causes his whole world to unravel and forces him to come to terms with man's innate self-centeredness. And it's a, a very interesting probe into all of the different ways that people can be selfish. And in one turning point of the movie, Affleck is, as a partner in the law firm, he's interviewing a young man who wants a job as a lawyer in the firm. And he says, why do you want to be a lawyer? And the man says, well, because of the law, because I have great respect for the law. You see, I know that men are basically good. (laughs) And the law will make sure that everything gets done right. (laughs) Well, Affleck in the movie, what's good about the movie is he just laughs as much, he laughed even better than you guys did. Because he realizes nobody's good anywhere around him, including himself. And the law can be manipulated by evil people to do terrible things. But what that young man said is our instinctual thought, is it not? People are basically good. And religion exists only to tell us what little extra we must do to kind of make up for the occasional mistakes. We seem to think coming out of the womb that we're kind of like a scale. And of course, we vainly imagine that we're a scale that's pretty much in balance. We, we're born innocent, tabula rasa, clean slate, having done nothing good or wrong. And occasionally in life, we'll make some bad choices or mistakes, mostly caused by other people doing bad things to us, right? <laughs> we would, of course, wouldn't have done those things if other bad people weren't around. But since they are, since they do change lanes and run into us, we're kind of forced. And so then in religion, we have to do a few good things. It's like yesterday I had a piece of cake, and so today I ate a piece of broccoli to kind of compensate for that. That's exactly what Ben Affleck's character thought. It's exactly what the young man who came to him thought, and it's not a new idea. It's exactly what the man who came to Jesus thought. And it is what we think. It is what colors our arguments with our spouses, our frustration with our children, our disappointment with our boss. It is instinctual in our thinking about ourselves. And God. But Jesus debunks instincts, doesn't He? He is not satisfied with some superficial idea of external goodness. He drives us back to the law and He insists that if we're going to use the word good, we better know exactly what it means. And He asks in this text, from where will your goodness come? From where will your goodness come? It's an important question. And so that we might understand that, we might get it from the right place and see it manifest in our lives, I want you to notice first, we must embrace the biblical definition of goodness. 
That's number one on your outline. We must embrace the biblical definition of goodness. Now, unfortunately, the word good, as is illustrated by that movie, is used as carelessly and imprecisely today as it was by this rich man. And so when Jesus speaks to this man and gives him a lesson in theology, he is speaking to us also. Jesus answers him and with him us, and he says this, your idea of goodness will not suffice. Yes, you think of me as a moral man. You think of me as a fine teacher, and you seek to flatter me by attributing to me some kind of goodness. But I want you to know the word properly only applies to God and that you do not yet believe of me, he says to this man, even as he says, no one is good but God alone. Jesus is not teaching something new. Psalm 14 had already made that clear. Listen to the passage. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. But they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Jesus is reiterating Psalm 14 in this passage. He's telling us that goodness as a character trait, is properly true only of God. Now, that part's fine, but we all know that some people are not gooder, but better than others. So what is it about this goodness thing that makes the Bible, that makes Jesus insist, Psalm 14 insists, that none of us is good? We get to the answer by making some observation on this text. First, I want you to notice, as we try to work to a biblical definition of goodness, notice that biblical goodness is taught in the law. Look again at verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus here is clearly not... He is not making up some new standard of goodness in order to trip up a sincere seeker. Jesus is pointing out that if you want to get to God, if you want to please God by what you do, by being good, like God is good, you must obey the law. And note well to which commandments Jesus points. He points to what's called the second table of the law. He points to all of the commandments that have to do with how we treat one another. He says uh, elsewhere in the Gospels, all of these can be summed up with one law. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the second greatest commandment. And so biblical goodness is taught in the law of God. That's the first thing we need to know to get to a definition. Then second, I want you to observe that biblical goodness is radically other-oriented. Biblical goodness is radically other-oriented. Look at verses 20 and 21. The man answers and says, Well, teacher, I've done all these things since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, One thing you lack, go your way. 
sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. We need not question the sincerity of this young man. No doubt, in some way, he was an upstanding citizen. He had, at least in some external form, kept the outward manifestations of the law. But what we do need to observe is this. When he kept the law, he always did so with an eye to himself. David Denicus and Andrew and Helen and I were at a conference this past week and there were many fantastic talks. And one of the comments that one of the speaker made really struck with me. It's this. God often reminded His people that they were Jews because He loved them. But they often believed that He loved them because they were Jews. God, God says throughout the Old Testament, you are Jews because I set my love upon you. But they began, instead of looking to God and His great love, looked at themselves and said, oh, God loves us because we are Jews. And there's a great truth hidden in that. It's this, when we focus on ourselves, we always reach the wrong answer. We think that God must love us because of who we are, rather than realizing who we are depends upon God's loving us. You see, this man's focus was completely on the wrong person. It was on himself. It was on his own performance. Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. So Jesus takes him back to the law. He says, <laughs> he takes him back to the law and he says, you have not yet understood the radical, other-oriented nature of God's commandments. And so the first part of our definition of goodness is this. Biblical goodness is so concerned with your fellow human that you give everything to care for them. Biblical goodness is so concerned with your fellow human that you give everything to care for them. And of course, lest we are tempted to vainly imagine that the fellow humans to whom we must give everything are just those who are in our family. Jesus told us the parable, right? You remember it? One day, a man was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell in among thieves who beat him and robbed him and left him on the side of the road for dead. And then a Pharisee came down and saw the, dead, the, the man wounded in the ditch and passed by on the other side. And so too, a scribe came down and saw him and passed by on the other side. But then, a Samaritan, the most despised people of all, a Samaritan came and saw the man, and he had compassion. <laughs> so he went to the man and bandaged his wounds and poured on oil and wine, put him on his horse, carried him to the inn, gave the innkeeper two denarii, and said, this should be enough to take care of the man, but I'm going to go do my business, come back through here. If there are any other expenses, I will pay them. And then Jesus turned to the man who had asked the question, the text tells us, in an effort to justify himself. And said, which one was neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? Why, it was the one who had mercy. Go then and do likewise. 
The parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us the exact same thing that this passage teaches us when Jesus says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. It's this, biblical goodness is so concerned with your fellow human that you give everything to care for them. Is that not the goodness of Jesus? Then third, we're working toward a biblical definition of goodness. We've seen that biblical goodness is taught in the law. We've seen that, second, biblical goodness is radically other-oriented. But notice, third, biblical goodness comes only through devotion to Jesus Christ. Look at verses 21b, the second part there, and 22. Come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It may not be apparent on your first reading of this, but Jesus is not, he is not suggesting that you can actually earn salvation by giving away all your money. But he is saying this, the kind of goodness God requires is the kind of goodness he has for you, which is completely interested in your well-being. And since that goodness we have not within us, it is not going to be found by our outward forms of obedience to the law. The kind of goodness we need is found in dying to self and in living for Christ. Thus he says, come, take up the cross and follow me. Do you see it? In order to be good, you must be dead. <laughs> Christ must live in you and not your own good works. So then here is our definition for biblical goodness. Biblical goodness is that character trait which is so concerned with your fellow man, your fellow human, that you give everything to care for them and so consumed with God that you give up everything to follow Him. Biblical goodness is this. It is that trait which is so concerned for your fellow humans that you give everything to care for them and so consumed with God that you give up everything to follow Him. Now you should realize from that definition, to have that in my life, that is going to cost a lot, isn't it? So it should not surprise you that in Galatians 5.22, where Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is goodness, above and below... In verses right above and right below that, he tells you if you're going to have that kind of character produced in your life, you're going to have to be crucified. <laughs> you're going to have to die to self. You're going to have to walk in mortification of the flesh that the Spirit might bear such fruit. And that leads us to the second point. If we're to have the fruit of goodness in our lives... First, now that we begin to grab a biblical definition of goodness, then second, we must deny ourselves the opposite of goodness. That's the crucifixion of the flesh part. We must deny ourselves the opposite of goodness, and the opposite of goodness is selfishness. It's selfishness. Uh, an ambitious farmer was unhappy with the yield his corn was getting. And so he began to do some research and he found this new hybrid of corn and he bought some of it and planted it and, and the, the results were phenomenal. The, 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 there was a tripling of, 
of uh, corn that he got in. Well, all of the neighbors see this and they are fascinated, probably coveting a little bit. So they went to the farmer and begged him to sell them some of the seed. But the farmer refused because he was afraid that if he gave his neighbors the seed, he would lose his competitive advantage. He did not want to simply have a great crop. He wanted to be the only one with a great crop. And then the next year he planted his seed and well, it was a good harvest, but it wasn't quite as good as it was the year before. And then the third year, he, he did the same, and, and it was, well, it, it was almost back to where he had started. And by the fourth year, he had no increase over his neighbors. And he began to research why, and he found that his prized corn was being pollinated by the neighbor's crummy seed. <laughs> Selfishness is self-destructive. Selfishness is self-destructive. It seems like if you just grab on to things and, 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 and make yourself the focus and try to get all the gusto you can in life, that surely you're going to get more than the poor sap next to you, right? The, the most toys wins. And it seems if we go through life grabbing and grabbing and grabbing, we will end up with a lot, and yet that's not true. Selfishness is self-destructive. What did Jim Elliot say? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to get what he cannot lose. Or Jesus, he who would save his life must lose it. Do you remember the song in Oklahoma? Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a, how does it, I've got a uh, wonderful feeling. Everything's going my way. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how our moods are so affected? No, let's not even say. Isn't it interesting how our moods are so controlled by whether we perceive that we are having a good day? Think about it. God Almighty, the creator of the universe, out of His perfect Goodness, His biblical goodness, which causes him not to think simply about his own glory, but to give everything for your blessing, has promised you that nothing, listen, nothing will come into your life except what is good. Everything, because of His perfect providence, predestinated everything for your good. So His promise of everlasting love, His promise of perfect provision, His promise that underneath you are the everlasting arms, all of these promises are yours in Jesus. But your spouse is rude to you tomorrow morning and you're in a bad mood the rest of the day. Isn't that an amazing thing? How we are controlled by whether everything's going my way. Why is that? Well, the Bible says it's because we have a fallen nature. On your handout... There's a little chart. I want to look at that in a minute. But let's just think about what it means to have a fallen nature. I know some of you are young and, and just have either getting ready to or have those young kids. It's been a long time since I've had a six-month-old in the house. But, you know, I remember this. When they wake up at 2 a.m., here's what they never did. They never said, you know, God is good. And He's given me such loving parents who serve me self-sacrificially day and night. And yes, I'm a little damp right now, maybe a little hungry, but you know what? 
I'm going to let them sleep in. (laughs) Some of you probably raised your children better than I did, and yours probably did that, but mine didn't. (laughs) You know, my six-month did at 2 a.m. when they woke up. They screamed. That's exactly it. They screamed. Why? Because me, myself, and I is the center of their universe. Look at it on those little circles. I don't know if everybody got a handout. This is totally worthless but because it's too small. But on the top one, there are three circles. And that's the way the Bible says that we are born. When we look at the entire universe, me or self is in the very center. And then maybe there's room for others. And finally... We give something to God. And according to this way of thinking, my needs, my desires are at the center when those are met. When my, as we're told by some teachers today, when my cup is full, then floweth over some that may be for others. Now let's contrast that way of thinking to Christ's way of thinking. It's the other little drawing. Notice who is at the center. It is God. And then others. And finally, myself. When you realize the great contrast between those two drawings, you can understand why God says that becoming a Christian is a conversion experience, right? It's why Jesus says, you must be born again. You're born the first time, and you look around the entire universe, and you say, hey, wow, I'm the center. Jesus says, you're born and you think something that crazy, you've got to start all over. You have to be born again to get God at the center of your universe. That's the transformation that must happen. And you can see as you look at the difference between the two drawings, a self-centered way of thinking must die if Christ's Spirit is to live within us. Do you hear about the two friends who went to the family restaurant? Do you know what a family restaurant? That's, that's where... You both get a plate, and instead of each of you getting a salad, they put a big bowl of salad in the middle, and then you kind of divide it up. And they did that and did okay. And then the waitress brought out all of the other food. She brought out a big platter of mashed potatoes. Those are fairly easy to divide. And then some vegetables, and nobody wanted those. So those those are easy to divide. (laughs) And then she brought out the steak, but but the, the chef had already cut the steak, and did not quite cut it in half. Cut one piece kind of small, maybe like a four-ounce petite. And the other one was a 12-ounce man-sized steak. So, so one of the guys reached over and grabbed his fork and speared the small piece of meat and stuck it on his friend's plate. <laughs> grabbed the large one for himself. Well, his friend was infuriated. He said, I can't believe you did that. The other guy said, what's wrong? Well, but you shouldn't, have, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't have done that. That's not the, Well, what would you have done differently? Well, if I were serving, if I were serving, I would have taken the small piece for myself and I would have given the large piece to someone else. And the guy looks down and he says, but I've got the large piece. It's exactly what you wanted. <laughs> That's a good illustration of what C.S. Lewis said. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, but which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else, of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. 
There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And here's the killer, the more we have it, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. See, selfishness must be denied if biblical goodness is to be born in our lives. Then third, as we seek to have this fruit in us, we must be cautious of the counterfeit of goodness. The counterfeit of goodness is self-righteousness. It's clear in this text. Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Here's what you need to know is this. Self-righteousness cannot be good to others because it is too busy seeing how good it is already. Self-righteousness can't be good to others because it's too busy telling everyone how good it is itself. See, the man who met Jesus was full of self-righteousness, was he not? And it was his self which kept him from coming to Christ. J.C. Ryle in his commentary, it's probably best not to read this long a commentary, but it was so well written, I thought it would encourage you. J.C. Ryle was an evangelical uh, Anglican pastor in the last century. He writes, the spiritual blindness here exhibited is unhappily most common. Myriads of professing Christians at the present day have not an idea of their own sinfulness and guilt in the sight of God. They flatter themselves that they have never done anything very wicked. I have never murdered or stolen or committed adultery or borne false witness. I surely cannot be in much danger of missing heaven. They forget the holy nature of that God with whom they have to do. They forget how often they break his law and temper or imagination, even when their outward conduct is correct. They never study such portions of Scripture as the fifth chapter of Matthew. Or at any rate, they study it with a thick veil over their hearts and do not apply it to themselves. The result is that they are wrapped up in self-righteousness. Let us beware of this state of mind so long as we think that we can keep the law of God, Christ profits us nothing. Let us pray for self-knowledge. Let us ask the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, to show us our hearts, to show, to, uh, show us our own hearts, to show us God's holiness, and so to show us our need for Christ. The self-righteous think they are already good. And all the while, it is that thought of my own goodness which keeps me from the one who truly is good. Be cautious of the counterfeit of goodness. Now, fourth, we must actively cultivate biblical goodness. Now, it's true that goodness properly belongs only to God. And it is also true that it is only the Holy Spirit who can produce goodness in you, and yet you are nonetheless granted by God the privilege of cultivating this fruit in your life. So here are four headings that you can use to work on goodness, to work it into 
your life. First, know the law demands it. Know that the law demands it. We have not, listen, we have not obeyed God simply by refraining from stabbing those we dislike. I hope that this week you will do that. (laughs) But I hope you will not think that is what the law requires and all the law requires when it says you shall not murder. The Bible insists that you love your enemies, that you bless those who curse you, that you do good to those who hate you, that you pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. Listen, Jesus did not say, oh, the second greatest commandment is like the first, do no harm to your neighbor. That's not what he said. The second greatest commandment is like the first, love your neighbor. Do good to them. It is an active goodness. That's why in Romans chapter 12 it says, outdo one another in showing honor. Not sit back and when they dishonor you, take it like a man, buck up, grin and bear it, and don't stab them. No, when they dishonor you, Go and honor them. It's an active goodness to others. That's why in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul is explaining how good Jesus is to give you everything you need, he says in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In fact, we could take all of the one another commandments that we are looking at as we prepare for the Lord's Supper each week and summarize them under this title, practical goodness. That's that's what biblical goodness is. It's doing things for others because you have such great care and concern for them. It is the summary of the law in the Old and New Testament. Know that the law demands it. Then second, know that your heart dislikes it. Unless you come to terms with the fact that we are naturally self-centered, self-concerned, and self-consumed, then we cannot have the fruit of goodness in our lives. Dear Christian, know your own heart. Confess both your nature to selfishness and your acts of selfishness and ask for Christ's grace. Study to know the ways in which your own heart clings to the sin of selfishness and will only let go of it in order to grasp onto the counterfeit of self-righteousness. Many will be the arguments your own heart brings against biblical goodness. I bet some of you, no, I bet all of us, when I gave the definition of biblical goodness, it is so concerned for others that I give everything for their care. Some of your hearts immediately welled up against that. Your argument, you know, nobody could do that. God couldn't ask that much of us. No, no, I couldn't do that. You don't know this guy sitting next to me. There's no way I could give anything for his care. The heart immediately begins to argue. It immediately begins to complain. Your flesh will rise up and object at every turn, but allow it not 
to win. You belong to Jesus. You have crucified the flesh with its sinful desires and passions. Yes, it has sinful desires and passions. Yes, it says we will not be good, but it's dead. You belong to Christ. No, the law demands it. No, that your heart dislikes it. And then third, know that your Savior gives it. Know that your Savior gives you goodness. Apart from Jesus, we can do no good works, including the good work of being good. (laughs) So what do we do? Let's meditate often on the goodness of Christ. For He has given abundant goodness to us. If biblical goodness is what, what happens when you have such care for your fellow human beings that you're willing to give them everything, now listen to this. Is that not what Jesus did? Jesus Christ, who though He was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be held on to, but He made Himself nothing, giving Himself into the form of a servant, born into the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Is that not a good Savior? He has given everything for you, including His Life, biblical goodness incarnate in Jesus Christ. Know that the law demands it. Know that your heart dislikes it. Know that the Savior gives it. And fourth, know that the Spirit produces it. Biblical goodness is not that which we screw up by trying harder to care for others. It is a work of grace. So what do we do when we do not do good. (laughs) What do we do when we do not do good? Well, we call upon the Father. Jesus said, if you ask for a, uh, a fish, He will not give you a stone. And so, in the same way, the Father gives the Spirit generously to those who ask. It is a work of the Spirit to have goodness in us. So call upon the Father who gives the Spirit generously to those who ask. If you look inside your heart and you find you desire not any goodness, call the elders together. Bring them together and say, Brothers, I have no desire to do good for my enemies. I don't even have a desire to do good for my husband. Plead for me, for God's Christ's goodness to flow through me. Memorize passages of Scripture which the Spirit can use to transform your thinking. Remember that picture. The reason we are not naturally good is because we think we is at the center of the universe. Plead with Christ. The, the Spirit uses the Word to change our thinking. Right? Romans 12, 1 and 2, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test the good and perfect will of God. The reason we do not know what it is to be good is because our minds are not transformed. We still have me at the center. Memorize Scripture that change our thinking. Memorize Philippians 2 or uh, that passage from Romans 12 that I quoted. Place yourself in a position where other-oriented ministry is necessary. That's an incredibly good way to build up goodness in your life. Force yourself... Put yourself in a place where I have to do other-oriented ministry. And then when you fail, admit your failings to one another, that we might pray for one another. We must abide in Christ, that the Spirit of Christ might abide in us. One day, 
Alexander the Great was walking down the road. And as he walked down the road, a beggar was there, about where Bear is. Not that Bear's the beggar, but you get the message. And as he went down the road, the beggar reached out his hand and begged for alms. Now this was a man who had not bathed in years. (laughs) He was disgusting. He was filthy. He was one despised by society. In the law of the land at that time, you were not allowed to speak to the emperor. Certainly not allowed to hold up your hand toward the emperor's face. It was an act of capital offense for which you could have your hand sliced off by the emperor's sword bearer. But, nonetheless, he did it. And he begged for money. And this was at a time when, for this man, not for this man, but for this man, (laughs) a few copper, he had no house, he had no family, he had nothing. A few copper coins could have been enough to feed him for months. And as he went by, Alexander the Great reached into his purse and pulled out a few solid gold coins, threw them to the beggar. Well, the the crowd around Alexander the Great who saw this, they were shocked. (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) A couple of copper coins would have been enough for old Bear. He didn't want anything like that. Can you imagine if Pastor Phil, when he got off the airplane on Friday night down there, at, uh, at the airport had seen a beggar and he'd reached in his pocket and pulled out a wad of 17 $100 bills and given to him, we would have said, man, something wrong with you, Phil. <laughs> and so the courtiers said, what are you doing? What are you doing? A-, a few copper coins would have suited that beggar just fine. And Alexander the Great said this, yes, a few copper coins would have suited the beggar but gold coins suit Alexander the Great. You know what? You're not going to find many people that deserve your goodness. But here's the good news. The Spirit doesn't say, go out and find those suited for biblical goodness. The Spirit asks you this, are you not suited to give it? Father, Would you have mercy on us and make us the kind of good people that the Bible describes? Not good in our own self-righteousness. Not good because we look at ourselves, but good because we look at a good Savior. Good because we look at a Savior who has given everything for us. And Lord, would you do exactly what you promise in the Word, which is to give your Spirit to those who need I confess, Father, I need Your Spirit. There are times when the Spirit convicts me of a need to be good and my heart resists it. I too often look and see to try to determine those who are suited for such lavish goodness. Would you remind us, not that those are are worthy to receive, but that we in Christ...
are worthy to give. And would you make us people who are good? For we pray it in the name of our good Savior and God's people say,